Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The Eyes to the Left. Hello and welcome to Eyes to the Left, the Mirror's political podcast. My name is Jason Beatty, and I'm joined today fortuitously by Professor Anand Menon, who chairs a think tank called UK in a Changing Europe. And the timing could not be better because we've had a manic 48 hours of two major cabinet resignations and Brexit is now yet again up in the air. And Anand hopefully is going to explain to me what are the consequences of Boris Johnson and David Davis leaving? Where's Therese's Brexit plans now? What does she think will happen when she presents her white paper on Thursday this week? And how will it be received in Brussels? So, Anand, this could not be better timing in terms of uh, how we've organised our conversation. Let's start with kind of what does it mean politically in terms of, you know, this kind of double cabinet resignation? Well... This was a fight that was going to happen because ultimately the European Union has given us two choices on Brexit. One would have pleased Boris and co. One was going to displease them. She's gone for the latter. So there's nothing all that surprising about the fact that this has happened. It's surprising it's happened now. And the big question, I suppose, is what they plan to do now. I don't think David Davis has ambitions, but it's hard to believe that Boris has resigned without having a plan for higher office. But I'm not sure he's going to succeed simply because the maths doesn't seem quite right. You need 40 odd letters to go to the chair of the 1922 committee to challenge the leader, but you need 150 odd MPs to back you to pass a vote of no confidence. And to be honest, I don't see Boris getting those votes at the moment. His kind of reputation is mightily diminished from where it was well, kind of I think four or five re- years ago, isn't it? I think that's true. I think his reputation has been diminished. And it's been striking, if you read the press today, that you're hard-pressed to find anything anywhere that is in the slightest bit positive about his record as Foreign Secretary. Uh, I think he's seen as being disloyal because the notion of uh, collective responsibility doesn't seem to have applied to him during his time in government. He seems to have contradicted the Prime Minister all the time. Uh And I'm just not certain that amongst Conservative MPs, he has that level of support. So I suspect that even if we end up having a vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister, she might win it. So is this the last gasp by the Brexiteers or are we still preparing for kind of more battles ahead as we get closer and closer to kind of March 29th deadline? I think it's probably the first gasp rather than the last, because what happened at Chequers last week was the government unveiled a plan that indicated a direction of travel. I mean, simply put, it indicated that the government is going to go for a softer Brexit than some of the Brexiters like. Now, what those some of the Brexiters thought this is a step too far, so Davis and Boris and Steve Baker resigned from the government. I mean, there are still some Brexit. I mean, remember that actually a a triumph that has been underreported, I think, for Theresa May is that two arch-Brexiters, Suella Braverman, and Dominic Rabb 
Who's the new Brexit secretary? Yeah. One stayed in the government in the Department of Brexit in the EU, and the other is the new Brexit secretary. So she lost two Brexiters, but she kept one and she gained another. So actually, there are still Brexiters willing to work for this government and for Theresa May. But I suspect that if, as the EU wants, she's forced to go even softer on Brexit, because I think the EU are going to say, look, if you want to be in the single market, you can be in it, but you can't be in part of it. I want to come on to that in okay. a minute. I want to explain what the you offer can't is. Stop and me then how it's... about Brexit. No, 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 it's fine. It's exactly why we invited you. <laughs> uh, as you know more about Brexit than anybody else I know, this is very helpful. So, very so low just, bar. <laughs> so just on the, um, so just on the, the p- politics. Yeah. And then we'll come on to what the offer is in a minute, if that's yeah. okay. Well, on the politics, I think there are more fights yet to come. Theresa May is going to have to move further on Brexit as the months go by. And I suspect it's going to become very hard, if her direction of travel remains the same, for the Brexiters in her government to tolerate that direction of travel. That would be my guess. But as you said right at the beginning, there were only two choices on yeah. the table. And do correct me if I summarise these incorrectly. There's either a kind of no deal or somewhere between no deal and a hard Brexit. Yeah. Or there's, we accept some sort of EU oversight, including a kind of arm's length oversight of European Court of Justice and signing up to EU regulations, yes. which the Brexiteers would say is intolerable. Yeah, I mean, there are three options. One is no deal. Okay, and there are still some Brexiters who think this is a really good idea, though actually, now that Boris Johnson has gone, you would struggle to find anyone anywhere near government who seriously thinks no deal is something we should tolerate. Okay, but the two deals that exist are one, something that they call Canada, which is a very loose free trade agreement that means customs checks, that means queues at the borders. So it's a deal that's bad for the economy. But also wouldn't pass the Northern Ireland test. But wouldn't pass the Northern Ireland test. We can come back to Northern Ireland because mm. that's a whole new spanner in the works. Uh, or what they call Norway, which, as you say, basically involves having all the obligations of membership without having any of the rights. So you are bound by laws over which you have no vote. So there's no... There's no perfect solution to this, but there is a binary choice of deals that the EU is offering us. And which way do you think we'll go? Well, <laughs> insofar as you can read the runes from last week, the Prime Minister is heading more towards Norway than towards Canada. That's to say, more towards a soft Brexit than towards a hard Brexit. But that is precisely what's irritating the Brexiters. Okay. So can you explain uh, what exactly was agreed at Chequers? by the majority of a cabinet. Well, what is the Chequers offer we're now talking about? Well, what was agreed at Chequers by all the cabinet, because all the cabinet signed up to it on Friday, even mm-hmm. though a couple of them had changed their minds over the weekend, was that the government was going to propose something to the European Union that meant we would kind of be in a customs relationship with the European Union, though the customs proposal is not one that the European Union likes. We can go into detail on that if you want, but it's really dull. And we would remain bound by a whole suite of EU laws over trade in goods. So we'd be in a bit of the single market, we'd be in something that's a bit like a customs union, but isn't quite a customs union. So we would be far closer to the EU than the Brexiters thought we would be. And in terms of freedom of movement, what was do they get anywhere on that? Because some of the language there was very vague, wasn't it? They talked about labour mobility. Do, do we know what that means? Well, the government seems to be inching towards a situation of accepting the fact that European or EU nationals would have more rights when it comes to their rights to come here and work than people from the rest of the world. But the government has remained absolutely fixed in its determination, at least 
in its rhetoric to end freedom of movement. And freedom of movement is a very specific EU legal provision that basically gives EU citizens the right to come over here. So they want to stop that whilst retaining some degree of preferential treatment for Europeans. And this is very fudged at the moment because that's the key issue over which I think the Brexiters will fight. Okay. And on the European Court of Justice, if mm-hmm. I get this right, it, it, it seems to be they saying that we will not be beholden to the European Court of Justice, but it would be it would still act as the ultimate arbiter. Is that right? Yeah, I think many. It seems, I know it sounds contradictory as I say it, but that's how it was kind of written down. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean it's a masterpiece of drafting that three-page uh, document that came out on Friday. But I think the EU would view what was said about the European Court of Justice as what we call cakeism. I the British want to be able to get all the benefits of alignment with EU law without having to be bound by the court, and I suspect the EU will give that short shrift. They'll okay. say. If you want to claim that you're aligned with our laws, it's up to our court to decide if you are or not. Okay, so we go to Brussels with this package, with mm-hmm. a new Brexit secretary, mm-hmm. um, but actually it's going to be Oliver Robbins, the Prime Minister's yeah. advisor, who probably do the negotiating. Yeah. And what's your thoughts on how the Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, will immediately react to this offer? Well, what has been very interesting over the last few days is Brussels is obviously sensitive to what is quite a febrile political situation here. So even if in private, many in the EU negotiating team looked at that document and thought, no way, they're not going to say that in public. I think they will maintain this line, which is, that's great. You've made some progress. We look forward to seeing the white paper. The white paper will be a longer version of the three-pager. And I think they'll say, let's use this as a basis for negotiation rather than rejecting it out of hand, would be my hunch. Because they know if they reject it out of hand, it creates yet another political crisis here and it strengthens the Brexiters. I think if Theresa May, having gone to the trouble and faced the cost of resignations over what she sees as a compromise, is confronted with Brussels basically turning around and saying, get lost it will be very, very hard for her to continue trying to achieve that soft Brexit. And I think the people in Brussels know that. And they, so they don't want more political turmoil back here because well, that, could, that could end in a no deal or it could end in... Brussels wants a deal. Brussels wants a deal for a number of reasons. One, because no deal will hurt them. It'll hurt us worse, but it'll hurt them because a lot of the member states trade with us a lot. Brussels also more personally wants a deal because the guy leading the negotiations, Michel Barnier, wants to replace... Jean-Claude Juncker as president of the European Commission. And I think his calculation is to do that. He needs to make a success of his current job, which is negotiating Brexit. How do you do that? By getting a deal. So I think he is committed to getting a deal as well. So no one in Brussels wants us to walk away. And at the moment, I think they're playing quite a clever game. They've stuck to their own red lines doggedly through the process. But at the moment, they're doing so in a whisper just to, just to avoid weakening Theresa May still further. So the big question here is, is it possible that what was proposed at Chequers could form the basis of a deal, or are there some elements of it which Brussels would completely reject? I.e., how can you have just single market access for goods, that is regarded as cherry picking, and not have freedom of movement, for example? How do you square that circle? Then? It's very, very hard to say. Uh, Brussels to to date has not shown any inclination to compromise at all. Their basic principles are. The four freedoms, including freedom of movement, are linked. So if you're in the single market in any way, shape or form, you accept free movement. And you can't be in the single market for goods and not for services. You're in the whole thing or you're not in it at all. The other part of the EU negotiating position is if you're not in the single market and a customs union of some kind, then essentially our rules will apply in Northern Ireland and not in the rest of the United Kingdom. And it's, I think it's important 
just to stress how politically unacceptable that is in the United Kingdom. So we face this really bad choice. The choice is either Canada, economic harm, and Northern Ireland being separate for economic purposes from the rest of the United Kingdom, or a very soft Brexit. And what the government is trying to do is find the middle ground between the two. And we have to wait and see whether the EU will give way at all on that, because to date they haven't. Uh, Is that really boring? No, I think it's really interesting, but carry on. I feel like my nerd in chief. (laughs) I'm asking nerdy questions. All right, okay. (laughs) And we resume. Sorry. (laughs) Forgive me. (laughs) So where do you see the areas where Theresa May could give more ground, which you said right at the beginning, inevitably she's going to have to do, and where do you see the bits where Brussels could give a little bit of ground to try and secure the deal? Theresa May, it strikes me, is in a really unenviable situation because the two choices that the EU have confronted her with are bad in different ways. Okay, Canada will be bad economically. Norway won't be great politically because it means taking rules without having a say over them. And a country like Britain, I think, would struggle with that. So she needs the EU to move. I suspect she's got a bit more freedom to shuffle towards a slightly softer Brexit, maybe extend the degree to which we're willing to be aligned with EU laws, but it's going to be very hard. On the EU side, the gamble now is, and this is why, of course, she spent so much time with Angela Merkel in the last week, that she needs the member states to start saying to Michel Barnier and the European Commission, look, they've gone as far as they can go. Look at the politics in Britain. There's nothing else she can do. And she's made concessions to us. Now we need to show some flexibility. And the, you know, the $10 million question to which we don't know the answer is whether people like Angela Merkel are willing to make that kind of effort for us. But the history suggests that successive British prime ministers have gone to Angela Merkel, asked for her support... She's done her classic Merkel act of kind of seeming to promise one thing mm-hmm. and then doing another completely at the end of it. And, you know, she's been a kind of false friend all the way through this process, hasn't she? Yeah, to an extent. But this is slightly different. I mean, there are fewer constraints in a way now because they're not signing a deal for an EU member. I mean, it was very, very hard to imagine a situation where Britain could opt out of free movement and be a member state of the European Union because it would mean we wouldn't be bound by parts of the treaties. So in, arguably, there's more freedom now. If we sign an association agreement with the European Union, there is freedom to say, have that, have that. The question is, one, whether the Europeans are willing to tolerate that, because their great fear is, if we get a really good deal, some other member states might look at that deal and say, that sounds all right, maybe we should have a referendum on leaving. So that's one fear. The other thing is whether member states, I mean, to put it crudely, can be bothered. And what I mean by that is all other members, you know, all, the, the, there's no member state that wants to punish Britain. Some member states will be quite badly affected economically if we leave without a deal. So Ireland, the Dutch, the French, parts of the German economy. But all the other member states have got bigger fish to fry. There's the whole migration issue. There's the Eurozone issues. There's the problem of illiberalism in Central and Eastern Europe. There's the question of what the hell do we do with Italy, with its new government that looks like causing problems. So Brexit isn't top of anyone's list except perhaps in Dublin. So the question is, even if they agree with us, even if they want to make concessions, are there enough member states that are willing to burn political capital on Brexit rather than anything else to help us out? And that I don't know, and I'm not certain there are. Okay, and but this idea that we could have some sort of divide and rule amongst the EU states, is that possible? I mean, does Merkel have a clout to kind of sway what Barnier does, or is it still kind of, you know, the 27 as one? 
Listen, if Angela Merkel threw her full political weight into persuading Michel Barnier he's doing the wrong thing, then I think he'd have no choice but to listen. But I don't think... I think the member states value unity over a good Brexit. So I don't think they're going to let us play that game. I don't think they're going to let us play divide and rule in the way that initially we thought we might. That being said, many of them are sensitive to the fact that we're in a difficult position and are probably sympathetic to the idea of being a bit more flexible to give us a deal. The only question is whether they are sensitive enough that they will find the time and the political will to engage in that debate with the European Commission and to try and force it to be more flexible. And at the moment, even though in confidence, in private, you hear from other member states, yeah, we think the Commission's being a bit tough, none of them have been willing to step up to the plate and say, hang on a sec, let's be a bit more flexible with the Brits. And it's that, I think, that the Prime Minister is counting on, that this will happen over the next six months. Okay. But as we said earlier, she's going to have to make some concessions from the Czechos plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was always the starting point yep. for her negotiations. And as we know from negotiations, it requires compromise for, to get a deal. She then has to come back to Parliament yep. and in sometime in the autumn and present that to MPs. What do you think is going to happen then? Well, I think the simple answer to that is God knows. Uh, it is conceivable that many Labour backbenchers even if told otherwise by the leadership, might vote in support of a deal that gives us a soft Brexit because they recognise that it's better than all the alternatives. I don't know what will happen. The European Research Group, if Theresa May makes... Fir- the, the European Research Group is already saying it will vote against the deal based on the Chequers paper. Can we just explain what the European Research Group is? The European Research <laughs> Group is a grouping of pro-Brexit Conservative MPs that have wielded a tremendous amount of influence over the Prime Minister to date. You could argue that all her red lines about the European Court of Justice, about freedom of movement, about paying money to the European Union, are essentially reflections of the European Research Group's position. They now, and their leader, Jacob Rees-Mogg, are making it very clear that if any Brexit deal seems to be based on what was agreed in Chequers last Friday, they will vote against it. But there is about 60 of them. So actually, if some Labour MPs are willing to support the government on a soft Brexit deal, it might be that Theresa May can sneak this through. Which brings in the politics, because yesterday, number 10 invited in a bunch of SNP Liberal Democrat and Labour MPs to discuss Brexit with them. And Jacob Rees-Mogg, to use a technical term, had a bit of a fit about this, saying, look, you can't depend on opposition parties to get your programme through. Otherwise, your own MPs are going to start rebelling. So the question now is, who has the votes? And actually, one of the most intriguing things about our parliament at the moment is you never really know which way people are going to vote. So your suggestion is that she could end up having to rely on Labour MPs. Yeah. But Labour would also be in a situation where they go, hang on here, we could bring down a government on mm-hmm. this one, which is more inviting, the, the, you know, a, a Brexit deal or the prospect of actually, you know, trying to get Labour back into power. Well, this, is, this comes to the nub of Brexit in Parliament. There are some MPs for whom Brexit is the most important thing ever. Either because you've supported it all your life, Bill Cash on the Tory benches, or because you think it's going to be dreadful for the country, Chukaramuna on the Labour benches. If you think Brexit is the most important thing, then actually party loyalty comes second to that. Bringing down the government is less important than ensuring that Brexit is does as little damage as possible, I think, for some Labour MPs. So it's not inconceivable that they'll vote with the government rather than taking a risk of the government's deal in autumn being voted down by Parliament, leaving us with nothing. 
And even before we get to that stage, we've still got the trade bill coming mm-hmm. before the end of this summer. Yeah. I mean, she promised could lose the vote on that as well, couldn't she or not? Yep, absolutely. And this is really interesting. And this is the bit I think that people haven't spoken about enough about checkers. Because on Friday evening, you know, that wonderful 48 hours where the Prime Minister thought she'd achieved what she set out to achieve, one of the things she'd achieved with her plan was seemingly to mollify, I'm never sure what word to use for the Tory, let's call them the soft Brexiters, the people who don't want the kind of Brexit that Jacob Rees-Mogg in the Tory parliamentary party. One of the things Chequers achieved was to get those people saying, actually, I might not vote against the government on the trade bill. There's an amendment about a customs union. I might support the government because the Prime Minister is taking steps in our direction. Those people now, because of the reaction by Boris Johnson, David Davis and the European Research Group, are thinking, hang on a sec, if those people are going to cause trouble, maybe we should cause trouble first by ensuring that an amendment goes through. So that's all up in the air. You know, Sunday night before midnight, the Prime Minister was probably thinking, we don't have to worry about the trade bill now because we've essentially bought off the rebels with this checkers plan. Now she must be having sleepless nights thinking, oh, my Lord. What happens if we lose the vote on the amendment on the trade bill and we're forced into negotiating a customs union? Can you explain, because it's one of these I'm still trying, struggling to get my head around, and, and just for record, and I'm nodding his head there. Shaking. <laughs> Shaking his head there. Uh, why we've gone for access to the single market on goods but not for services? Why not just go for, for complete access? Well... That's a very good question, and it's a very good question, not least because, of course, 80% of our economy is services. So actually, if your aim is to protect the British economy and protect its trade with the European Union, services will be the logical place to start. But I think there are several reasons. I think, one, because this is a compromise, and Theresa May had to give the Brexit to something. And by leaving services outside of this deal... She could say, well, you can still go away, Liam Fox, and side trade deals with other countries over services. Now, that's silly, because actually the one thing that countries have never really done historically is sign trade deals covering services, because it's too hard to reach agreement on standards, regulations, and things like that. But anyway, that was the compromise she struck. The other thing, I think, is a lot of manufacturing companies kicked up a fuss in the two weeks before checkers. You know, we saw announcements by Rolls-Royce, we saw announcements by BMW, we saw announcements by uh, aerospace companies, all saying, my God, if we're not in the customs union, this could be really, really bad. In a sense, the government has given into that pressure. And I think politically, manufacturing in a way is more totemic than services. A bunch of people in a call centre or a bunch of academics teaching foreign students is less politically emotive than Rolls-Royce saying, well, look, we're either in the customs union, we're going to have to think about making our engines somewhere else. So I think there's a variety of reasons why she went for goods. There are some people who think this is the thin end of the wedge. She started with goods. Eventually, she's going to turn around to her cabinet and say, actually, we have to do services too. But that, I don't know. Okay, so we could end up with that. It's possible. I mean, Chequers is an opening gambit. Okay, so... It's a direction of travel. She's moved more towards Norway than towards Canada. Whether she keeps going in that direction will depend in a large part on how the European Union reacts to what she's proposed so far, and also on the balance of political forces in Parliament. If all of a sudden another 100 Tory MPs declare themselves to be hard Brexiters, that changes the calculation. That isn't going to happen, though, I don't think. So you, you could argue that she's actually in some ways a stronger position because she's she now knows the, the size of the kind of internal opposition in terms mm-hmm. of the number of Brexiteers they're not going to get any larger in number. 
And if she could get a consensus in Parliament, then she could get a, a, a closer to a softer deal as possible. Yeah, I mean, what we don't know is if she goes softer still, how many more people will ally themselves with Jacob Rees-Mogg? So if she makes more concessions to the European Union in a softer Brexit direction, does Dominic Rabb, who was a convinced leaver during the referendum, remember, does he say, actually, this is a step too far for me? That's the real trade-off she has to face, is whether there are people on the fence at the moment who can just about tolerate checkers, but might not be able to tolerate anything else. Okay. Could you see us getting to a situation where she presents a deal to Parliament, it gets voted down by a combination of the Tory with moderates, or whatever we decided to call them, mm-hmm. and kind of Labour MPs with the SNP and Lib Dems? And what happens then? What do we do if, if the whole deal gets voted down? Well, I question that analysis because I think the Tory moderates at the moment are on side with her plans to a significant extent. OK, well, I you could get a the Tory Brexiters. So if you can get a combination of Tory Brexiters kind of joining forces with, with Labour and the SNP. Yeah, because it's unpalatable to both of them for different reasons. What happens if it's voted down? Well, firstly, I think the Prime Minister will have to go because, I mean, if there's one thing that defines Theresa May's premiership, it is Brexit. I am the person to carry out these negotiations leave it in my hands. I think if she spends the next six months negotiating a hard-fought deal with the European Union, brings it back to Parliament and loses, her credibility will be shot. So then you have the question of what happens. It takes the Tory party three months to have a leadership election. Will that happen? Will Parliament become so unstable that actually we have another general election? I do not know. I think at that point, what someone in this country is going to have to do is ring up Michel Barnier and say, look, we need to stop the clock. We need to delay the process because there's no way going to be ready by March 29th. Is that possible? Is that an option to extend Article 50? You could extend Article 50 if all the member states vote to extend it. And what's your thinking on that? My thinking is it is almost certain that one or more member states will say, yep, yeah, we're happy to do this, but in return, could you do X? So everyone will look. I mean, that's the thing about unanimity in the European Union. Unanimity gives everyone a veto, so everyone thinks, actually, we can use this as a way of getting something we've always wanted. So it won't be straightforward. I suspect it's possible. Okay. And and what's your view on a, a, a second referendum, which has been renamed or rebadged as a people's vote? Is is that? Do you think that's a likelihood or not? Yeah, I'm not sure I'm wild about people's vote either, because it sort of implies something about the people who voted first time round. Uh, but I think every, one of the brilliant things about studying British politics now is that every conceivable outcome is possible. I can see a way in which we fall out of the EU with nothing. I can see a soft Brexit being possible, a hard Brexit being possible, and I can see another referendum being possible. What it would take is Parliament to vote to say, OK, this is your deal. We think it's pretty good, but ultimately we're going to leave it to the British people to decide. That might happen. I think it's unlikely, but it might happen. And actually, what we don't know then is what would happen in a referendum. Uh, the polls are still pretty much 50-50. The country is divided down the middle on Brexit. And the one thing the pollsters don't know, which is why they struggle with the election and they struggle with the referendum, we don't know who will bother to turn out to vote. Will Leave voters be so incensed that they'll all vote in this next referendum because they think they're being shafted? Or will many Leave voters, for whom this was their first vote in years because they're fed up with politics, think, oh, I knew it was only a matter of time before they betrayed us. Why bother going out again? We don't know who will go out and vote. And so there's, it is, I think anyone who says they know what would happen if we had a referendum on the deal is lying. Yeah. But this is one of the, the, the big consequences of Brexit, isn't it? It, it? It's straining people's trust in our institutions and in the democratic process. And that's the, that could be the legacy of it, that people... Well, you know. yes and no. I think 
I think to a certain extent, the fact that 52% of people voted to leave the European Union against the advice of 99% of the political and economic establishments showed that they didn't trust it them already. I mean, for me, the referendum illustrated the fact that distrust was there already. I'm not sure to what extent Brexit has increased that distrust. I don't think, you know, the sight of government over the last two years has particularly inspired people because it's been weak, it's been indecisive, it's been unstable. But I think there were healthy, there were very, very unhealthy, rather, levels of distrust of the political establishment that reflected, that were reflected in the vote itself. Okay. And in terms of the kind of the dilemma facing the Conservatives, I mean, how realistic is this threat that if they don't deliver the Brexit, which they feel is a pure Brexit, it could see them being kind of uh, challenged again from a UKIP-style party, and I'm phrasing that quite carefully because it doesn't necessarily have to be UKIP, mm-hmm. but you could get a kind of a, a kind of populist right-wing movement which comes along and says, you know, you were let down by these people, you mm. could not trust them again. It's- well, let's let's start with the extreme scenario first. Imagine we had a referendum on the deal. And imagine hypothetically that in that referendum, the British people voted by, let's say, 52 to 48 to remain in because they didn't like the deal. Okay, what would happen then? Well, that would be a political nightmare, wouldn't it? Because good old Nigel would be back. He'd probably be polling at mid 30s because he'd be going around saying, I told you they'd betray you and I was right. And the Conservative Party would be split. It would be like some hideous political Groundhog Day where we went back to 2011 and did it all again. The Tory party would be split down the middle. And actually, we would be arguing about Europe nonstop until we had another referendum. So in that extreme scenario, I think you're absolutely right. Whether or not people are that fussed about what kind of Brexit, I'm less certain. And I genuinely don't know this because there's lots of contradictory information. On the one hand, it's absolutely the case. I think after the local elections, if you look at the polling, 70 odd percent of Tory voters are now Brexiters. So Leave voters. Okay, so the fate of the Tories is tied up with Brexit. So in that sense, yes, this government has to deliver exit from the EU. If you look at public opinion over the specific choices, what public opinion basically wants is for us to stay in the single market and end free movement. So public opinion wants something that is impossible, that the EU won't give us. How public opinion breaks in the event that we give way on freedom of movement, or we leave the single market, I just don't know. I mean, I'm not sure people have thought that through in sufficient detail as yet. But interestingly enough, all the survey evidence out there since the referendum shows people have become more liberal about immigration post-referendum. And actually, one of the staggering things about the election of 2017 was it was the first time in a decade or more that if you look at a survey of what people thought the the most important issues in that election were, Immigration didn't feature in the top 10 issues. But is that because they feel they've now got control of it again? Well, it's partly, I think, because people think Brexit has taken care of it. Though even if you dig down into the polling, even people who think Brexit won't make much difference to anything seem to have become slightly more liberal on immigration. So it's not entirely that. So I don't really know what it is. You can think of a number of factors. It might be because people have suddenly realised that, you know, the Czech guy next door wasn't a scrounger. He was actually a brain surgeon and it's going to be quite bad if he goes home. I mean, I don't know what has led to this change in attitudes, but it seems to be true that there has been a change in attitudes. So many people are saying this is the moment to have a proper honest debate about immigration. Now, whether if we, I suspect maintaining freedom of movement would be a step too far for the Conservatives. 
not least because one of the things they want to do at the next election is target some of those northern Labour seats where they whittled down the Labour majority last time and are confident of winning next time. Their immigration is a key issue. But whether or not the Tories can negotiate a deal with the European Union where they say, OK, look, we'll go nine-tenths of the way, just call it something else, I don't know. Because the Norway model, as everyone calls it, the European Economic Area, the EEA treaty includes something called the emergency break, right? Now, the emergency break is great and everyone's very impressed with it. Why? Because no one's ever used it. So no one actually knows what it means. But I could imagine a scenario where the government does something like that and comes out and says, look, we've negotiated what David Cameron couldn't, an emergency break, even if we don't know if we can use it. You know, they'd whisper that bit. And secondly, we're going to make all EU citizens who come to this country register. So that has been an absolute triumph for controlling immigration. And they'll also forget to tell people they could have made these Europeans register even as members of the European Union. But most people don't know that because most people have better lives than me and don't spend it looking at the EU treaty and studying Brexit. So it might be that they can sell something that isn't really much of a concession as being a bigger concession than it is. And that I really don't know how that will go with the public. But I think the totemic thing is 29th of March next year, we leave the European Union. The Tories are then seen to have delivered on the big thing. And is there a, but is there a, a, a kind of bonus from that? Is there an electoral bonus once you've got it over the finishing line? Or do you think it's going kind to... Of... I'm not sure whether it's a bonus or simply a way of delivering on what they've already promised. I think the latter. But I think that's why people voted for the Conservatives uh, increasingly. As I said, those 70% of Tory voters who are leavers because they trust the Conservatives with Brexit. Now, the really interesting question thereafter is if you believe the economists who say, sort of 90-odd percent of professional economists say, once we've finally left, so once this transition period is over at the end of 2020, if we're not in the single market and the customs union, then we will see significant economic effects. Whether or not people turn around and blame the Conservatives for that, I don't know. Because bear in mind that even if Brexit goes wrong, it's not necessarily the case that people are going to blame the Conservatives. So more and more people think the Conservatives are handling Brexit wrongly or badly. Okay, But even more people now think the European Union is handling them badly. So a lot of people are already blaming the EU for this outcome rather than the government. So all those things are unknown. How the British people react to the impact of Brexit on this country is the big political question of our time. But the danger here is the blame game becomes kind of stokes up kind of xenophobia mm-hmm. and stokes up hatred. Mm-hmm. And it's like we, we were bullied by Brussels for mm-hmm. having Absolutely. the temerity to... Yeah, I think there are a lot of Remainers out there who think, well, we'll leave the European Union, the economic impact will be bad, the whole country will suddenly become incredibly pro-EU. I think that's rather naive, because actually if the economy becomes very bad, I suspect that a knee-jerk reaction amongst many of the population will be those rude words, which I won't say, screwed us. Okay. A couple of quick final questions. Can this be done by the end of the transition period, or does that, is that inevitably going to have to be extended? I don't think it could be done by the end of the transition period simply because we have to negotiate a trade deal with the European Union. And even if we take an off-the-shelf Canada or Norway, there's going to be a lot of details. That will take a while and that will almost certainly take longer than the transition period. And then the deal has to be ratified, not by the EU, not by the member states, but by individual countries and their parliaments. And in places like Belgium, where you have regional parliaments, all of those as well, that process takes about 10 months. Okay. So the transition period lasts from March 2019 to December 2020. There is no way you negotiate and ratify a trade deal in that time. So we're talking March beyond 2020. Well, 
we're talking two things. One, yes, if you want to get it done during transition, you're going to have to extend transition. Though, of course, the Chequers draft, one of the concessions to the Brexiters is that line that says transition will end in December 2020. But the second thing is whether actually the EU legally can extend transition even if we decided we wanted to. And that is far from certain. What happens then? What happens then is on the you know the end of December 2020 we we leave transition we're no longer a member of state of the European Union or we haven't been for 18 months and we become a world trade organization trading partner of the European Union. Well, that's a no deal cliff edge, isn't it? That's a no trade deal cliff edge. Yeah, absolutely. So I think at the moment we're in a situation where you know the cliff edge of March 2019 is possible though not likely. The cliff edge of December 2020 is possible and quite likely. Just to cheer everyone up. I was going to, my final question was, are you an optimist or a pessimist about what's going to happen? <laughs> I'm a pessimist about everything in life. Uh, I, I mean, one of the things about my job is because we are following Brexit day to day, I feel I sometimes just completely lack a sense. It's not just that I can't see the wood for the trees. I sometimes can't even see the individual trees anymore. So I don't know is the simple answer. I have, a f- I have a degree of faith in the officials negotiating on both sides, none of whom want us to face that cliff edge that they will find a fix, that there is some legal fudge they can come up with that will allow us to en- extend transition, maybe give it a different name, maybe call it this is the real implementation phase or something. But I do not think we can negotiate a trade deal by the end of 2020. So I think unless we can find a way to extend transition, then things look pretty bleak. But they must know that in Downing Street now. They do know that in Downing Street now, and I suspect the calculation in Downing Street, and it's a common strategy for this Prime Minister and indeed for her predecessor, is let's deal with that problem when it becomes a pressing problem. Let's kick that can down the road. And I think, you know, one of the defining features of Theresa May's government, and I've been very, very critical of it, but now I sort of think, well, actually, maybe this is sensible. Because the because Parliament, because the country, because her party are so divided over Brexit, she governs week to week. She says, OK, let's do this now and let's see if it keeps the show on the road till Friday. Then let's do something else and do next Friday. I think anyone who tries to judge Theresa May by long-term objectives is kidding themselves. She's keeping the show on the road and she's probably got a thing on her wall where she's counting off the days to the end of March 2019. And I think in that sense, she will revisit transition where it becomes pressing. The government still insists on calling transition an implementation phase, as if we were implementing a trade deal that we haven't even started negotiating yet. So they can play the language game. I'm not sure who it's convincing anymore. It certainly hasn't convinced us from the start. This isn't implementation, it's transition. It's a standstill while we negotiate the thing we then have to transition to in a new implementation phase. And that's going to take well beyond December 2020. And this is partly because we actually haven't got the technology for the sort of agreement we want to do anyway. On well, that's, that's a whole different question. But yes, if we, if we end up negotiating on the basis of the government's current customs plan, then we have to not only negotiate the deal, but invent some technology pretty quickly as well. But I'm, I, I don't think the EU will go for the UK's current customs plan. One, the EU doesn't want the UK acting as its customs agent. Because we're outside the legal purview of the European Court of Justice, they have no recourse to us. Why should they trust us? Secondly, because the practicalities. I mean, you see, Matt, take a simple example, okay? You have a truck full of bags of sugar, all right? That truck enters the United Kingdom. Under the customs plan, we will charge a European tariff for the EU on any of that sugar that's going to the EU. And we won't charge that tariff on any of the sugar that's staying in the UK. 
are we seriously going to track every single packet of sugar in that truck to make sure that it stays in the UK and doesn't pay the EU tariff? If not, how do we do it with any degree of certainty? We don't. So I think there are a lot of practical problems standing in the way of this customs plan and EU acceptance. So that one goes? Almost certainly, I'd have thought, yeah. I mean, the EU has already accused us of magical thinking amongst another of other things for our customs plans. I very, very much doubt that will fly. And does, uh, I was trying to avoid this, but we're going to have to get into some thickets here. <laughs> okay. But does the suggestion of being in a single market for, for goods and agricultural products solve the Northern Ireland border question? The combination of something that looks like a customs union plus a single market for goods and agriculture s- solves the border problem. I mean, there is a broader problem as opposed to a border problem, which is that in the in the agreement we signed in December, we talked about maintaining North-South cooperation. North-South cooperation goes way wider. It's stuff like police, security. So it doesn't solve that, but no one seems to be focused on that. But the specific border problem, yes, that deal will solve it. And that's the attraction. And actually, that's one of the interesting things about parliamentary arithmetic. I noticed that last week, Dominic Grieve, who is, uh, a, you can call him a Remain MP or a soft Brexit MP on the Tory benches, made a speech in which he said, I do not know anyone in Parliament who would be willing to vote for a situation in which there was a border between the North, between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. And if, if the UK is outside the single market and the customs union, that is what we've agreed to in December. The so-called Northern Ireland backstop is if the UK is outside these things, Northern Ireland will remain in them because that's the only way of preventing that border. And I think that causes real constitutional issues. Northern Ireland will essentially be part of the EU economy, though part of the UK politically. But that's a non-starter for Theresa May, which is repeatedly said. It's a non-starter for the Conservatives. I also think, interestingly enough, it's a political non-starter for the Labour Party. If you think about what the Labour Party hopes for in the next election, the Labour Party must be pinning many of its electoral hopes on winning back all those SNP seats north of the border. Okay, If you suddenly give Northern Ireland a unique status inside the European Union, what's the first thing the SNP are going to say? They're going to say, we want that. We've said from the start we want to be in the single market and the customs union. You told us it wasn't possible. Now you've given it to Northern Ireland, so we know it's possible. So actually, this is what we want. And it might be that the SNP get a pole bounce out of that. And that, that was really interesting. Thank you so much. You say the kindest lies. <laughs> um, you can uh, go to our website, which is mirror.co.uk forward slash eyes. That's A-Y-E-S. You can find us on iTunes, which please register. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at a at JBT Mirror, and Anne's on Twitter as Anand Menon One. And UK and Exchange Europe is also on Twitter at UK and EU. Brilliant stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Hopefully, by the time this recording is finished, nobody else has resigned. That's all I can wish for. <laughs> the eyes to the left.